to be lost on account of Christ. And here we end up with, uh, let me try to activate one other thing this morning. This is my little pointer. I choose this, put it up on double click, choose easy draw, and with apologies to the French, voila, um, <laughs> we have some marker. Um, so let's go and um, use it here. So I was trying to, what I wanted to point out is you have basically two objects to this verb, I have reckoned, these things to be lost. What is that construction? You have two objects to the verb, what is the type of construction we have, uh, we call it a double accusative, but we could also define it a little more precisely. Again, you can take a look at your chart. Do you remember that? That's okay. Um, thank you for scratching your heads. I'm not offended that these things are not coming immediately to mind. Uh, I'm here to help them surface. Object and complement. Yes, object and complement. The first object is the object of the action. You often action of evaluated. He, he reckoned these things and then the quality of the evaluation to be loss. I have to supply the to be from the English. I've reckoned these things loss. Are you all right with me on that? So that's why I put them there in the, in the object position. Now let's move on. Any questions about seven before I move us to eight? Let's take a look at eight. Eight starts with that very long transitional statement that we've said, just treat it all together as a very <coughs> emphatic, but other, however, otherwise, indeed. And then a, what, a present tense, I am reckoning. And again, notice here, let me go ahead and get it in place. Uh, Notice that we have repeated what construction with this hegumai? No, it's not chiastic, but that could be a possibility with zemeon. I'm just thinking right here. We have how many objects again? Two. Two. So we have what type of construction? A parallel construction that's an object complement construction. It's this double accusative. Forgive me, I'm asking the question maybe too hard, but I'm just getting I'm getting after a simple answer. That the same thing we met up in verse seven, we meet here again in verse eight. Excuse me. Yes. Where's object complement on your chart? I'm sorry. It should be under accusative. <coughs> Take a look at accusative. Under case. Do you see that under case? Okay. Yes. Alright, that, that's what I've been working Okay. It's a fairly simple construction, Cassandra, but I think it's necessary to, to be aware of in order to know what each of the objects is, that there are indeed two and not one object. There's no tie that's linking them. I see. I, I just now made the connection that this is for the double, this is for the double accusative. Correct. And this there's two kinds word. of double accusative. Yes. And so, so you were asking us which one. Yes. Yes. That's, that's, where, that's where I, what I was after, not to, did not do in an easily facilitated way. Um, with the rest of this clause, we're fairly straightforward, aren't we? That uh, I have reckoned all things to be lost on account of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, on account of whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Here again, we have 
a relative pronoun that is linked back to an antecedent, namely uh, back to Christ Jesus. Because of Christ Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things. And so that uh, relative clause really is on a tether, and I can put it anywhere on the page just as long as that bungee cord of the dotted line goes back to the antecedent. Because it's modifying the antecedent and has a world of its own of, of prepositional phrase and object and verb. Okay? Now let's go to the next verse. And I am reckoning them scubalov, refuge, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Um, that, the, the henna clause is a simple purpose clause. Why, what is his aim in making, doing these reckonings? gain Christ. And then we have a further description of what this being found in him entails. And here we're on to a bit of a challenging area. Let me just get my arrows on here and then I will actually need to correct one arrow. Take this arrow. found in him. And then we've got a, uh, we have a participial phrase uh, that has a subject, or has an object, um, a negative, not having my own righteousness. And then it has a, uh, has a construction of almost a kind of a, well, to function use of the definite uh, article to show us that this particular prepositional phrase goes back and modifies not a noun, not a verb, but a noun, namely the righteousness. Because that uh, righteousness is, um, the word righteousness is repeated in the feminine here with the taint. So not having a righteousness, we you know, sometimes it could even be called a mild relative, um, in a way of saying, which is from the law. And then we have but, and you almost have to supply the word righteousness again. That, that's the challenge and where I got my error <coughs> wrong. Um, the righteousness, and then you have a a definite article and another definite article which both relate to prepositional phrases but the righteousness which is through the faith of faithfulness of Christ the righteousness that is from God based on faith um, I don't think there's anything I need to point out in terms of variations any questions on this? This was a bit challenging, wasn't it, to try to get in the right, right order on this? I have a quick question. Do you have an equal sign yes. in front of the team and fit? Yes. But you have an arrow. Don't all those teams? Uh, those, all those teams do not refer to the... What has happened here... What has happened here is that Paul is playing on the word righteousness. We're going to come back and <coughs> wrestle with this as a word study when we do the exegesis of it. But he's actually using the word righteousness here, and this will, I hope, explain it to, to Cassandra and others. He's using it in a, both a negative sense, something he doesn't approve of, and in a positive sense. The negative sense is works righteousness, performance righteousness, from the standard of law. The positive use is righteousness that is through faith, um, 
Linda, you can grab a hold of one of these or they'll get it to you. Um, righteousness, that is three, the, and again, we've got to, we will um, work with this faith of Christ as well as we, because it can either be an object or a subject of genitive. It could be faith in Christ or it could be Christ's faithfulness, although we're pistis, pistis, pistu, we're taking mainly as the latter. So it, if it is through the faithfulness of Christ, through a righteousness that comes from God based on faith, that's a different kind of righteousness than the righteousness that is of the law. So what Paul does is he speaks in really very, a great deal of shorthand here. He picks up the Allah and he doesn't go ahead and take this and move it up here and, and have it, you know, right here or, excuse me, I could say right over here, but rather he saves the Dikaiosune until the end because he wants to say two things about the Dikaiosune. He wants to put two prepositional phrases with it. I see. Does the Allah kind of act like a wall? Yes, the Allah so is I'm, a wall. Oh, Allah is oh. a wall. You don't Basically, you don't want to go back beyond it. Whenever you meet a coordinate, well, either type of conjunction, coordinate or subordinate, it is a wall. It's a boundary. Everything that comes after it is going to be linked to what comes before it. it should. Rarely, though, it does happen. Paul will stick stuff before a, a given uh, conjunction yes. and when it really belongs after Why does that it shouldn't survive. He gets enthusiastic. He wants to emphasize. So, so are you all right now? I, I, I think I'm understanding now. The, the equal sign. The equal sign is trying to say that. And let me get rid of these. I, I just didn't see two of them. So. Well, the, there there is two of them in the sense that you've got tain tain. Okay. That's what I. That's, that's what I'm doing. But in the final analysis, it's really the fact that this Dikaiosune has two prepositional phrases with it. It's got the dia prepositional phrase and the act prepositional phrase. But because the definite article comes before the uh, between the dia and the ak, mm -hmm. I have chosen not to put this dia as a Prepositional phrase pointing down to the. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, um, and, and so both canes actually are referring to the. Dikaiosune. Have I made this too complicated, friends? I hope not. Well, yeah. it's just a complicated passage. Yeah. So Paul's it's uh, Paul did it. Okay. <laughs> it's all Paul's fault. So, um, okay. Uh, thank you for wrestling with it. Uh, in, the rest of you listening in on Cassandra and me as we talk it out. Ebenezer, question you have? Um, verse 11, I... I okay, well, we'll let's oh, get down so. to verse 11. Um, pick up verse number 10. Now here, for the first time, we have, we've got two plus the infinitive, which points to what kind of relationship? Two plus the infinitive? Purpose. purpose, good. Let's say it together. Two plus the infinitive means purpose. Again, two plus the infinitive means purpose. Good, thank you for indulging my um, basic uh, chanting approach to Greek. Uh, the, this preposition, this uh, in purpose infinitive, as you can see from my marked up sec, uh, copy, can actually go with one of three options. You could either see it, or actually four, op four options. You can either run it all the way back to I'm reckoning them scuba and treat to Noni that I may know him as a parallel purpose. And maybe even a little bit explanatory purpose. And then uh, you could potentially not run it back all that way. You could just go back to piste, some commentators do. And they say that uh, the, 
and this is maybe what I need to do is go back to my previous uh, section here. You could take it back to Piste and say, knowing him is a further is the purpose of showing faith in Christ. Other commentators say, no, you really need it back to take it back to not having my own righteousness. That this the purpose of not having my own righteousness is to be able to know Christ. Um, or you could take it back to being, being found in him. The purpose of my wanting to be found in him is to know Christ. And actually, uh, O'Brien points you to all those, those options. How do you decide? Uh, you have to weigh the meaning of the verb and the meaning of the verb you see it or noun modifying. Do they really go together in a purpose way? And you probably have to, have to ask yourself, and it's almost a discourse question as well, at what level, what level of importance is this knowing Christ? Is it of the same level of importance as in order that I might gain Christ? Or is it a level of importance that's underneath gaining Christ, being found in Christ? Or is it of a level of importance that's not under that, but that's under further under not having my own righteousness? Or is it a level of importance that just deals with having faith? I must confess, I guess I'm really driven out to the more, uh, to treating it as a parallel purpose with um, gaining Christ and being found in him. Do, do you see? See where I made? So that's how you try to answer the question. What is, what's parallel here? Or what is it subordinate to and really showing the purpose of it? <coughs> Lots of thought has to be present in that I may know him, the power of his resurrection. So all these four arrows here are a way of saying in this PowerPoint that Noni can go in four different directions in what it modifies. Now we have this, uh, what we've identified as a chiasm, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings of being made conformable to his death if somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. I have basically, on the form of the chiasm, I have basically taken these as four parallel, uh, parallel objects. Um, and again, there are choices that come into, into play here. In other words, some commentators, as they have looked at these four, resurrection, sufferings, death, resurrection, and they have said, no, these aren't four parallel things in the chiastic construction, but rather some of the later ones modify earlier ones. So, for example, uh, the idea of the fellowship of his sufferings really is further modified or explained by being conformed to his death. And being conformed to his death is somehow further modified in terms of a condition if somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. We'll come back and wrestle with this in exegesis. But the basic point is it depends on how you understand that being conformed to his death. I understand it as a dying with Christ, a Romans 6 idea, spiritual conformity to Christ's death as, as part of what is entailed in knowing Christ. Others sometimes take it as indeed martyrdom, and so they put it underneath the fellowship of his, his suffering. I take the fellowship of the sufferings as external, as persecution. And the attaining the resurrection from the dead, yes, is a real meeting Christ. Um, so that's not Romans 6, that's 1 Thessalonians 4. 
So anyway, that's why I've given you these various options that you'll see presented at O'Brien. Any questions or comments you have about it? Uh, Ebenezer had a question on the 11. The, the last um, game post couple. Yes. Um, I put it under um, under Abumai by itself, like uh, Alepara, Tahina, and... Oh, I see. <coughs> okay. I... Uh, I don't think it should probably go there. It potentially could at Bedezer. In other words, you are, you are not incorrect in because A introduces a dependent clause and 2 is a dependent, 2 known as a dependent idea. Bringing it all the way out and having it go with a gumai is possible grammatically. The question is, does it make sense discourse-wise in the flow of thought? I propose it probably doesn't. Um, why? Because, again, of this binding of resurrection and suffering underneath knowing Christ. That becomes the stopper. Anything else? So, Dr. Lockman, you said the ace, if I take it all the way back to Egomai, that that's not the best way it's to do not, it. Yes, it's not the best solution because you were saying, okay, I want to take Apos back to Hagen. Right. Uh, the, it is definitely possible grammatically. The issue is the flow of thought. In other words, is this attaining to the resurrection from the dead such a sub-thought underneath two known I that we don't need to go any further back. Okay. All right. I, I, are you going to go with this stuff on that, Jim? I, I have been uh, as we've been going along. Okay. Well, I was wondering if A post of that phrase, is, oh, you do have an error Yes, there are two possibilities with oh, A yeah. post. Yeah, that's what it I can go yeah. toward noni with your chiasm, or it can simply go back to the uh, parts. That was my understanding. E either of those will be acceptable. Okay. And Ebenezer, I, I sort of want to give you half marks for that. Uh, so put, uh, put OK WJL half marks. And I'll try to remember to explain my grade with that. All right, thank you for engaging this. Uh, we've really gotten into some complicated areas, but I hope you can see the mechanical layout uh, uh, tool can help you at least sort out what's going with what. Shall we move on to word study? As we have done word study, just to review, we have entered into thinking about focus the meaning, which is a synchronic study. We looked at phronao as it's used by Paul in the prison epistles. But then I set you on the path of a, of, of a diachronic study or a background study where you are looking at other documents not written by, the, by Paul and how they may serve by comparison and contrast to help you understand Paul's use of the word. And we chose, and we uh, have pointed out to you, and we'll just remind you, this is chapter 11 of the of Illumina Meeting, that uh, what we meet in Scripture is divine revelation. And as we're pointing out in the use of Hebrews in our devotional thought, this is a unified book. There's a unity to the Bible. So it, it should be very natural for us to go and look at uses of words earlier on in the progress of Revelation and find them as serving as the background and even the source for understanding the range of meaning of words as they're used by later writers in the text. And uh, we have presented to us, uh, thankfully, uh, in God's providence, uh, a bridge between Hebrew and Greek. 
namely, this is Hebrew translated into the Septuagint in the uh, three two hundreds BC that, for example, take the word doxa. If you'd never had the Septuagint, doxa would never mean bright, shining glory, the, the manifestation of the presence and character <coughs> nature of God, which we meet in the Old Testament, show me your glory, your kavod. But because the Septuagint translates, the word originally simply meant reputation. And it, in the verb form, it was the verb dakao, which means to seem to be. And when you seem to be something, you are, are treated as something by someone, you have a reputation. Uh, so when we come over to the Greek New Testament, it is, we get much help from the Septuagint in terms of a number of the vocabulary, like doxa. Steve? I was kind of confused as far as taking whatever ancient text, the Septuagint or whatever, yeah. as far as the meaning, if you're in the Septuagint and you look up the word, it'll give you a meaning for back in that time? Yes. Okay, and then, so the, the New Testament would be the same thing as kind of... Yes, um, well there may be, uh, there, I guess we can put it this way, the closest link between the Septuagint, Steve, and the Greek New Testament is quotations. Many times the New Testament writer will use the wording of the Septuagint when he translates. So from that level we can say he's definitely grabbing, <laughs> grabbing the meaning of the Old Testament with the vehicle of the Septuagint. We're not claiming that the Septuagint is inspired. No, only to the extent that it's used in the Greek New Testament do we claim any inspiration. Uh, Beyond that direct quote, the next level down would be allusion, and the next level down would be what would be called Old Testament ideas, or Old Testament concepts. And again, it's the fact that the Septuagint has consistently used a particular Greek word to translate a particular Hebrew word, that it starts freighting that Greek word with meaning, or expanding its range of meaning, or compressing its range of meaning, such a way that when you get to the New Testament and you start comparing the use of that word with how it's being used by other Greek writers outside the New Testament, you say, hey, this, this doesn't really match. And then you go back to the Old Testament, you go back to the Septuagint, you find it being used in the same way as you meet it in the Septuagint. You, the light bulb goes on and you say, hey, this, this is probably, this part of the range of meaning is there because of the Hebrew word that was then translated by this Greek word. I hope that helps unpack it. So, when we study theological terms, it's just a no-brainer to go back to the Old Testament or, well, we don't even have to go that far potentially. I mean, we could go back to early church preaching in the book of Acts if we're dealing with the epistles. We can go back to Jesus' teaching as given us to us in gospel writers. Uh, they can, that can be background to what Paul does. Uh, but further beyond that, we can go back to, to the Septuagint. Cassandra? So if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is that we go to sources that were uh, in antiquity to yes. see how that word was commonly understood. Yes. Yes. As, as kind of a backdrop to understanding how Paul means it in this passage. Yes, and there is a whole challenge here, something that's called, well, something that's called parallelomania. Uh, have you heard of parallelomania? No? Okay. Uh, this is a disease among exegetes in which they, they find these links of where the words are used, and they end up saying, aha, see, it's used there to mean this. It must mean this in the New Testament. And we have to be careful about that. Even though I'm having you look at the backdrop of background, that background may either be the dark velvet against which the jewel is placed in contrast, or it may be congruent. It may be, yes, the same thing. We, we just have to be careful as we, as we work with the particular words. We're not just because it means this, even in the Septuagint, doesn't necessarily mean 
have the same meaning in, in Paul. So you're proposing that we use the Septuagint in the same way we use another antiquity document? Yes, okay. yes, yes. Although, uh, again, um, with this connection back, we as Protestants, uh, one of the gifts of the Reformation was a little phrase, well, it really came from the Renaissance, but the Reformation took it over, ad fontes, um, which means to the fountainhead. And in the Renaissance, there was a recovery of the study of ancient documents. Uh, and what that meant for the church was you went back behind the Vulgate uh, Latin translation of the Old and New Testament uh, to the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. Uh, and so when I'm always emphasizing the Hebrew, it's because that's where our authority is in terms of, of the biblical, biblical revelation. Now, the other things to look at here quickly is other types of background, Cassandra, and this gives me opportunity that your comment uh, uh, enables us to do a nice segue here. Uh, there is such a thing as a collection of materials written by Jews between, well, we, we basically say 3rd century BC, 3rd century AD. These documents, some of them are written in Greek, a number of them are, uh, a lot of them are not written in Greek. They're written in Hebrew or Aramaic or some other languages. But they represent Jewish thought. In other words, the prophecy fell silent in the end of the 5th century BC with Malachi. The last, you know, you, you go to Malachi and you turn one page to Matthew and you really should have all these blank pages in between. You should have 400 years of blank pages in terms of divine revelation. But the Jews didn't settle for those blank pages. They filled in those blank pages with their own writings, writings that were sometimes history, sometimes <coughs> apocalyptic writings, uh, sometimes wisdom literature, poetry, etc. And they reflect in those writings their, their seeking to cope, apply Old Testament to their own experience, you get a lot of, you know, we talk about how they're looking forward to the Messiah coming and being a, a king who's going to conquer the Romans. Well, we can read documents that talk about that. And as we study the Greek New Testament, we can, by comparison and contrast, use those documents. I just mentioned Old Testament Apocrypha, Old Testament Pseudepigrapha. We can also point you to the Dead Sea Scrolls, we can point you to the Mishnah, the sayings of the fathers that was probably present orally but not written down to about oh, 300 AD and then 2 to 300 AD and then you move into the Talmud which is the commentary on the sayings of the fathers. You have, And then of course you've got the Targum which was the Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament and you have the Midrash which are the commentaries. There's a whole plethora of materials that we could use to get help in understanding the context in which the New Testament is written. Um, but beyond that we have Hellenistic non-literary Greek, that's the papyri and the inscriptions. What I mean by that is there, I think I've mentioned this before, um, the Greek of the New Testament was written in really the everyday language of the people, more than any other, I'll call it literary document. In other words, the Greek New Testament is a literary document in the sense that it was meant to be published and read. But it doesn't have the elevated style of Hellenistic literary Greek the elevated style of a historian who wrote, or an ethicist like Plutarch who wrote, or a Diaseculus who, who wrote history. So, uh, as I may have mentioned before, uh, those in earlier generations, let's say before the middle of the 19th century, uh, 
scholars, New Testament scholars who had been trained in the classics, and that's usually how they came along. They started school by learning Latin and learning classical Greek, and then later grabbed a hold of New Testament Greek, which is much easier than classic. And they were quite embarrassed when they came to New Testament Greek. It was very rough and very simple and not as ornamented as you met. The, the most pleasing Greek of the New Testament is Luke Acts, the book of Hebrews, uh, maybe second, first, second Peter, um, etc. as we've mentioned. So they called Greek, the Greek written in the New Testament Holy Ghost Greek. That the God, the Holy Spirit, developed his own style and grammar to communicate his revelation, and that's why it wasn't classical Greek. But in the latter, I guess you could say, two-thirds of the 19th century, there was discovered in the sands of Egypt <coughs> documents, papyri. Papyrus, which we'll go into, we're not going to do it today, but we'll do it at another time when we deal with textual criticism, was a type of paper that was, was on which things were written. And in the arid climate of, the, uh, of Egypt, such documents could stand the test of time, uh, be preserved for millennia. And scholars started discovering these documents in the latter part of the 19th century, collecting them and publishing them. And when they studied these documents, they found the documents had a kind of style to them, which was very much like the style of the New Testament. So they said, this is Koine Greek, common Greek, Greek of the common people. And we can study these. We actually happen to have a whole collection of these papyri on microfiche. In the, in the library, as well as uh, that per Perseus uh, Tufts has uh, electronically the papyri that you can go and study this, this area. And then finally, just uh, I've gone on too long here, but has this helped you understand? I, I hope a little bit more about background, and then we'll go to the specifics, and then definitely on the theology. Uh, we have not only the non-literary, we also have the literary, and we have the classical. That is, things written before Alexander the Great. And they too can help us, uh, but less so than, um, than, than the Hellenistic and the Hellenistic literary and non-literary. Uh, let me show you one resource. I think I've mentioned it to you before, but I'd like to go to it now. Uh, there's this 28-page resource on, I guess I can't use my little pointer, uh, called In-Depth Word Study and Introduction Aids. Introduction and Aids. Uh, that, I, that is part of the Greek is Great Gain Supplements. Uh, has anybody accessed this? No, some have, some on have. The yeah, on the website? Yeah, on the website. I created everything else. Okay, yes, so well, yeah. you can. As you look at it, basically what it does is it walks you through a word study from classical all the way through all of these various segments. So if you ever, now this is not for weekly preparation, I understand that, but as part of your background study, as part of your ongoing development, there may, you may get interested in a particular area or, or, or word concept that you'd like to pursue. You just sort of peck away at it. It might be an issue in social ethics, like what was the vocabulary. You, you, we've got a lot of, I think really, it's, uh, with all due respect, it's really bad scholarship because it's very agenda-driven by pro-homosexual uh, biblical and classical scholars who try to use the vocabulary or explain away the vocabulary for homosexuality uh, from ancient times. Well, if you go and do the study of that vocabulary, you will see that, that what they're trying to do is just not accurate when you look at it in context. And, and that is, uh, that's the evidence that we have to deal with. So, you know, if, if you happen to be in a ministry context where the whole issue maybe it's a university context where the whole issue of homosexuality is a continuing concern, 
you might want to say, I want to be a little bit of an expert in this area, so I'm going to go study how the, this vocabulary that I meet in the New Testament, and they're only a, like a half a dozen words, how they were used in ancient times. And when these people say they were used this way and not that way, are they correct about it? Do you understand, you understand what I mean? So, so that's what this kind of work would do for you. And it might be something positive, like you might say, I want to spend my life studying the fruit of the Spirit. And I really want to know what, what the fruit of the Spirit would have said, rung, what it would have rung in a person's ear when they heard those, that vocabulary. And I'll study it in classical time. I will study it in Hellenistic literary usage, I'll study in Hellenistic non-literary usage, Old Testament usage, Jewish intertestamental usage, I'll study it in New Testament usage. And to get help in doing all of that, I will, I, I have some charts here where I list for you all the ancient writers according to Bauer Danker, give you the century in which they wrote, and give you some of their basic content type of writer they were. And I have, I've divided up the classical from the Hellenistic, and I've also gotten us on to uh, Josephus, uh, and um, if I can, and let's see, where am I here? I guess Josephus and Philot, let me show you, I guess I have to go over further. I've also, on this one, I list, this is all that microfish material that we have in the library. If you wanted to look up any given, you, know, you will find sometimes BGU, which is Berliner uh, Grekisch um, uh, or uh, it is, it deals with Urkunde, uh, ancient documents. Um, and you can find them on the microfish here. You will see them referred to in the a text or in the text of Howard Anger. Um, and then uh, this is just good for, here's all that uh, apocrypha pseudepigrapha area with the abbreviations, the names, the type of literature and when they were written. And then the whole matter of um, Josephus and Philo. Uh, here are all of Philo. He was an ancient, he was he lived 20 BC to 50 AD in Alexandria in Egypt, and he was basically a philosopher who tried to commend uh, through the use of philosophical reasoning and a lot of uh, typology, the, the truth of, of scripture to, to the Greek world. Uh, and here are all his writings, and they occur in the little green books, the um, low classical, and I've given all the volumes where they occur in low classical. So this is all, and here's Josephus did not write as much. And then if you're interested in non-Greek Jewish writings, here are the Dead Sea Scrolls, the abbreviations for them. And then finally, here is that Mishnah, the sayings of the fathers, all the different chapters, and in the English translation from Danby, uh, where you can find them. I know this is more than you ever wanted to know, but um, but it is intended to be a great aid to you when you want to, when you see something in a commentary that says, which I'm seeing all the time as I work through uh, the Gospel of John and, and read commentaries. I'm seeing references to the Mishnah dealing with, you know, when I was dealing the other week with the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda, I was being given. Uh, uh, given uh, M, that's Mishnah, San, uh, in Mishnah Shabbat, there's a whole tractate on the Sabbath, <coughs> chapter 7, section 2, that lists the 30 not, or the 40 types of work less one, and right down at the end, one of the types of works that are prohibited, the 40 less one, is carrying something outside of your domain, which is the carrying on the Sabbath of that that map. And then if I go to, I think it was B. Barakot 12.5, uh, I can find uh, a statement by rabbis about how it's a, it's a pro, you do not break the Sabbath if you drop some medicine into a person's mouth but the, and the person is, uh, is experiencing a potentially life-threatening disease. 
But if the person doesn't have a life-threatening disease, if you administer healing to him, you've broken the Sabbath. So for a man who's been lame for 38 years, obviously not a life-threatening disease, Jesus has broken the Sabbath by doing the work of healing. But I got all of that from, from that Mishnah. And you can see how that can illumine the teaching and the preaching as you help people relive and appropriate for themselves what's going on in God's Word. Okay, I, I didn't intend to do all this, but has this been of some help to you? Yes. Okay. okay. Uh, we, I, we have research projects in other classes, too, so this is helpful because then okay. we can see. You can go yeah. after things yeah. elsewhere. Okay. Who would determine if it was a life-threatening uh, The rabbis would have to determine it. I guess if a person was losing blood, if a person, if, if a person was... Uh, you know, it, it, I guess we would say a you know, person had been in a coma, a person was having struggling breathing. You know, anything where you see death near, uh, that would be what they would say. It's okay to drop some medicine. In their mouth. The rabbis would have to rabbis, make that. The rabbis would have to make that judgment. Okay. Now I realize I'm right at the end of where I wanted to be or end of time, but not where I wanted to be. Let me just do two things with regard to these two items. We were studying tapainao, and we were studying kuperhusako. All right? I, uh, with the help of uh, Mrs. Hack, we went ahead and, for some reason, why are these not letting me? These don't let me do my fancy writing, so I'll just uh, little will this, what will this allow me to okay. I'm not, this allow me to, yeah, I can highlight text, okay, I'll do it that way. Here is top high novel. We ask ourselves, what kind of background would be good to study for this word? In our passage, it says, he humbled himself. And oh yes, we could look for moral or spiritual background of humbling oneself under God, possibly. But we have statements about taking the form of a servant, becoming in the likeness of men. It, yes, it is a spiritual use, but maybe we could go back to a concrete use of it that would help us. Does that make, make sense? And as we take a look at the word, we meet two basic meanings. One is to cause to be at a lower point, to lower, to lower something. This is interesting. I'm trying to highlight the text. Let me highlight. Well, uh, then we have to cause someone to lose prestige or status, to humble, to humiliate, to abase. Notice how this is tapai na'o, that a'o ending is causative, to make humble, to humiliate, if you will. If we take a look for our passage in this article, um, we will find that our passage is dealt with where? I'm trying to grab a hold of it here. It's dealt with, excuse me, right here, Philippians 2.8. And then we look around our passage and say, what types of verses are used with it? Well, we've got Diogenes Laertes talked about, we've got Huberides, we've got Josephus Antiquities, we've got Xenophon Anabasis. Now, you know, I, I'm rattling these things off because I've had to work in this area. You'll be able to rattle them off as well in time to come. Um, but you can find all those abbreviations in that list I gave you or in your Bowerdang. But all of these look like they're Hellenistic writers or possibly classical writers. And they look like, or a Jewish writer. So we're probably headed in the direction of a kind of concrete example. Of these, Josephus is probably the easiest one to get at, right? because we can look at an English translation of Josephus in our Logos, 
we can go for a Greek translation of Josephus in uh, the Perseus. Shall we go there just quickly? Uh, Dr. Lucker, yes. what, is, what document is this? This is Bauer Danker. This is why I'm so high on this dictionary. It's just chock full of backgrounds. And you can get it on Logos, but you pay to add it to your library. Unfortunately, it's not part of the original language of library. But you can definitely you can get it electronically as well. If we go to, uh, I'm going to call it Logos. If we go for our library and say, I want to look at Josephus. We have the works of Josephus in an English version given to us. Um, and, well, actually, let me just um, do, I happen to be there, so let me just back up here. Uh, say we had started at Antiquities 1 1. I'm going to go all the way back there. What was our number? It was 18. One, what? 18147. Okay. It is a it is a section that is, that is describing Herod Agrippa the first, the Herod who is in over Galilee uh, in the time of the early Christians, Acts twelve, and the one who dies in Acts twelve under God's judgment. He was a profligate spender, always in debt when he was in Rome, and when he returned from Rome. He, uh, for these reasons, the reasons of that, he went away from Rome and sailed to Judea, but in evil circumstances, being dejected with the loss of that money which he once had, and because he had not the wherewithal to repay his creditors, who were many in number, and such as gave no room for escaping them, whereupon he knew not what to do, so for shame of the present, he retired to a certain tower of Malachi and Idumea, that's across the Dead Sea, and had thoughts of killing himself. Now, we don't know which word of all of these happens to be tapai napo, but it happens to be the one that's translated dejected. Uh, but we can check that out for sure by going to the Perseus website. So let's go to the Perseus website here a moment just to validate that we are working with this particular vocabulary word. After I show you this, I'll just do a sum up on it, and then I will. Um, I have I've bookmarked. If I can find it here. I have bookmarked under search engines Perseus website, and I'm going to call up Josephus A.J. Antiquities of the Jews, and. I guess we've done this before for you and you've seen it. I go to Jewish Antiquities. It gives it to me right at the beginning. One prologue. I type in over 18 volt 147. And I could, it will call up for me. And there is my top pinot minos word. Do you see it there? And I can, if I want to, actually call up an English translation of Josephus, right in Perseus. It will allow me, to, allow me to do it. Okay, and what is my takeaway from this? Um, let me thank you for your patience. Uh, let me just do it this way. So what we have basically done is we have said, things kicked out. We basically said I'm going to study Jewish intertestamental to get a hold of a, a spiritual meaning, see it in its literal meaning for the sake of some illustration. And I get help from Bauer Danker. Um, and we've already seen uh, the antiquities mentioned in Bauer Danker. And we've got help and get help from those abbreviation lists. So I can use a library hard copy to look it up. Use Logos, which we've done, or Perseus Internet. Um, and we have the particular uh, 
what I'd end up doing is writing down this basic uh, snippet from that section. And I would uh, say something like this contemporary background helps us understand the loss of prestige and status of Jesus' self-emptying love as he actively humiliates himself through crucifixion. Okay? Thank you for your pursuit of it. Let's take our first break. I guess just go ahead and get back together again at 10 after. Take a quick look at Psalms on the theology. We also have to talk about synthesis. Thank you for your kind attention. Hope I didn't overload you with too much here. Trying to show you the engagement of it. As you can see, there's some powerful tools here. And a lot that uh, we can, but I, what I'm trying to do, my, I realize this. There's an upside and a downside this, to this. I am trying to give you access very practically to some very powerful tools for studying ancient documents without having you study all study all those ancient documents. In other words, you're dipping in here and there, and. The, the upside of that is you can do it fast and it can really help enrich your teaching and preaching. The downside is you don't know what you don't know. You, you don't know the context, you don't know the documents. So you just have to give yourself to some orientation that way um, along the way. I apologize that I can't do both, I just chose to do, do the first. Now let's take a look at how who pair who sapo quickly. To raise to a high point of honor, raise exalt. Here, I think Christ, uh, God has exalted him. I don't know why I'm going to try to, so often I kick this crazy thing out. It should be there. to try to study Huperusao, it looks as though Huperusao, I'm sorry, I just can't, is going to be a theological term, background source, biblical revelation, right? That makes the best sense. And in fact, if we go and study in, and I'll call up my, uh, if we go and study in Bauer Danker again, we will find, as I think somebody was pointing out already, and here I'll try what uh, uh, kindly uh, Chris has helped me see this. If we take a look, Huperupsao is being referred to as being present in, well, what's, left click, okay, left click, do I hold down? You hold down the whole time. Okay, I'm holding it down. I then, I'm gonna click on this. Hitting up here, maybe it's down here that it's the left. Okay, let me try this. Okay, let's try again. Uh, all right, you see Psalm 96, you see references to again Psalms, so it seems as though we're dealing with Daniel, LXX. It was probably good to go into the LXX, right? So we will try, and we see Psalm 96 referred to 9 referred to a lot. So let's try that out. Actually, if we go to, if we go to the Septuagint, and I'm going to try to do the study here, which I was trying to do, uh, Linda, when we were, if I go to search, I'm going to, yeah, I wanted all morphological texts, all passages, in, let me see if I can find, uh, can I find the Septuagint? Yes, Laga Septuagint. And if I do Lemma, and then we've got who, pair, this is what uh, Linda I was really looking for, it's Greek words. 
I come down and I look for Huper Upsao, where do I find it? Here. Let me just go and see in all of the Septuagint. Where do we find it? Well, we find it in Psalm 36.5 and Psalm 96.9, but then we're on to, since the Septuagint has, this is the Odes of Solomon, since that's part of the Apocrypha, the Septuagint has that. We've got a lot for this. No, actually, it's an Odes of Solomon. This is the Ode. This is the song of the three young men in the fiery furnace. So this is part of the book of, extended book of Daniel. That's, that's what's going on there. Now, one of the tricky things about the Septuagint is the numbering system, especially with Jeremiah. It's all Balak stuff. There are some books, especially older books, that have additions to them, like Daniel, like Esther. There are some books, there is one, the book of Psalms has Psalms 9 and 10 combined. So forever after that, you're one psalm off. So Psalm 96 is really Psalm 97. And because, as well as with the Hebrew text often, the title of the psalm is identified as the first verse, you're always one verse off. So if I click on this to bring up Psalm 96, verse 9, if I look in my English Bible, I think I will find, am I right to take, take a look in your English Bible if you have one, or maybe I can go to it with another search area or open just open open the ESV okay. okay open the ESV <coughs> alright see I was looking at under the under the Septuagint I was looking at Psalm 96 what verse 9 yeah and here I've been kicked into the ASV, <coughs> but it is the same, and it actually happens to be the same <coughs> verse, 9 is the same in both places. So here, now this is based on the Hebrew, so it may not be, the Septuagint may not be exactly the same, but you have here, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth, you are exalted above all gods. Okay, if we go back to you have been exalted above all gods. See it? So that's why, uh, you know, that's where we can get some help from this particular area. And I'll show you our conclusion here. I'm just curious about one thing. Um, let me just do. Um, Mrs. Jones was asking about what about Sarah and Tapainao is uh, it used? Well, as long as you have all morphological texts in that particular category, we can find it. Let's see what we have. Well, in Genesis, is it... Um, I'm not sure that we've got Tapainao used to describe Sarah. We don't. But it's used in a few things dealing with, with uh, their being oppressed in Egypt. Okay. And what good do we get out of this? <coughs> the good we get is to draw the conclusion. I'll just run this here to raise to a high point of honor, background, Old Testament praise of God supreme over all beings is now applied to Jesus. That's really what has happened, which is really quite significant, isn't it? You've given him a name above every name. You were highly exalted, highly exalted in our life. I think I need to head over, does that give you enough on this aluminum meeting? Yeah. And you, you're getting more comfortable with it, I hope. Thank you for engaging it.
Again, my whole aim is I want you to be able to directly interact with the text. You know, it's a great temptation to just rely on secondary sources. Just rely on this commentator and that commentator, this dictionary and that dictionary. And they're very helpful. And I'm not at all saying don't use them, but I don't want you to stop there because what happens is you end up in your preaching saying, as P.T. O'Brien says, as so-and-so says, and, when, and it's right for you to, to note sources, but when you consistently do that, you, you tell your people, I'm more relying on this secondary source than I'm relying on the Word of God. Does that make sense? So I, that, that's sort of part of my burden, is to encourage you to be able to do your own study, see it for yourself, handle the Word of God for yourself, yes, with other aids. Now I need to talk about these areas of adjustment in our time together. Um, here I have a number of handouts which I will uh, ask for some help with. Recruitment is a, a very um, 